You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Today we read from Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild ox shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch, night and day. It shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles There is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortress. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. The wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for himself a resting place. There the owl rests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in the shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation To generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble needs. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He shall come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, there they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be up, shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God. Good morning. My name is Kevin Huddleston. I'm a deacon here at Coram Dale. And um, a couple months back, Bob shot me an email and said, Hey, you want to preach? That's literally all it said. I was like... Okay, sure. Give me a shot at varsity coach. I'm cool with that. What are we preaching on? It's like Isaiah 34 and 35. I was like, all right, cool. Really excited, you know. Grab my Bible, turn to 34. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. I was like, okay. I guess we're going to do this. Round one, go. So, thankfully for you and I, I'm not stopping on chapter 34 this morning. There's still some good news for us today. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 34 if you haven't already done so. And I'm going to catch us up quick on where we've been so far. Or offer you guys some cliff notes if you guys haven't been with us or just visiting with us this morning. So this summary of Isaiah thus far comes from our boy Ray Ortland. Isaiah is a book for God's people in particular. But not just that, it's also a proclamation for the whole world. So chapters 1 through 12 describe God's covenant with his people in particular. Chapters 13 through 27 describe God's gracious purpose for the nations, so it opens up to the whole world. And the section we're concluding today, 28 through 35, it argues that God is able to fulfill all his purposes. So today is the climax of that section. Today God is going to challenge us with our two final outcomes. It's decision time for us today. Do we trust God? Are we going to take him at his word? We shall see. These two chapters are intended to be a really stark contrast, okay? So it's all about this or that, light, dark, one or the other. And in these big contrasts, the idea that Isaiah is going to be presenting to us today is this. Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going, okay? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. So let's start then by looking at these two chapters and the pictures that Isaiah is painting for us. So, starting in verse 1, chapter 34, you just heard it read. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Notice that Isaiah starts this chapter by just basically saying, listen, everybody, tune in. Nations, peoples, whoever you are, wherever you are, let the earth hear. Raise your eyes, I've got something to say. Verse 2, 
The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. He's addressing the nations here, that broad spectrum of everyone. This chapter isn't just directed at God's people. It's directed at all of us. Anybody who has ears, ears to hear. So listen up. Verse 3, their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Doesn't get any more graphic than this, does it? I don't think there's another place in the Bible that can get as dark or as dreary. But the unfortunate thing for us is that apart from God intervening in our lives, this is what our future holds. It's dark and it's graphic. Verse 5 continues. For my sword has drunk its fill in, heaven, in the heavens. Behold, it descends upon judgment, descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. If I say basketball player, you might think LeBron James or some other NBA star. If I say beautiful scenery, you might think mountains, ocean. When God says the nations, he wants us to think Edom. God calls out Edom because Edom is sort of the anti-Israel, okay? If Zion is the place where God is honored and glorified, then Edom is the place where he is reviled, disdained, sinned against, non-existent. And that is why God is bringing his judgment on Edom, the anti-Israel. Verse 6 continues. The Lord has a sword. This is our verse, right? It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams. I'm going to pause there. In the Old Testament, God demanded that his people sacrifice lambs and goats to cleanse themselves of their sin, to draw blood, to purify themselves. So now, you see in verse 6, God is using this language of sacrifice again, except this time it's not lambs and goats, it's people. And instead of the altar, it's the whole earth. Isaiah is saying, look, people, the Lord is going to judge us, the whole earth. He has a day of vengeance. Verse 8 says that. A day, a future point fixed in time where God will bring judgment upon the entire earth. God's patience will run out. There's a day when he will right all the wrongs when payment will be due for things that you and I have done or thought. There's going to be blood. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 11 through 15. Isaiah paints us a little picture within this bigger picture of judgment. Starting in verse 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out the line of confusion over it the plumb line of emptiness. And then jump to verse 13. Thorns shall grow over it, its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be a haunt of jackals and an abode for ostriches. Does this sound like the kind of place you want to live forever? Sounds like the petting zoo at Henry Dorley, right? Not so much. <laughs> the created order, as we know it, has been handed over to porcupines and hawks, Okay? The world that God created for good has basically been undone. It's been decreated, so to speak. God takes what was once dark, 
a formless void, and he said, let there be light, and it was good, right? But now we see the words like emptiness and confusion are used again. It's kind of like throwbacks to Genesis 1, 2, before God said there was light. Darkness reigns again. Now this picture concludes with God reassuring us, reassuring us that his judgment will be exact and it will be eternal. Verses 16 and 17, Isaiah kind of puts a bow on things, okay? Basically says, hey, these animals, these unclean things I have gathered together, there will not be one of them that is missing. They shall possess it forever. It as in the world, forever as in without end, eternal. But what's he mean by this portioned it out to them with the line? What line? If you guys remember in verse 11, it talked about the plumb line of emptiness. Have any of you ever tried to frame a wall before? I haven't until about four months ago. I got a good buddy of mine finishing his basement. I go down there, he's got tools scattered about everywhere. I have no idea what half of them are supposed to be. But he's a good buddy of mine, so he's willing to be patient with me, teach me how to do all this stuff. And I asked, grab this thing. I was like, what is this? He's like, oh, that's a plumb line, plumb bob. I was like, okay, what do we do with this? Basically, the floor of your basement's pretty uneven, right? So you don't want your walls to be bowed, uneven, hanging, weird, all that fun stuff. So when you're framing your wall, you basically nail this plumb bob to the top of the wall. It's a very heavy cylinder. It comes to a very fine point, and it's attached to a, screen, a string. So you pull that thing down. It locks in place. You move your wall aside here and left and right. That plumb bob drips on the floor, moves. Then you chalk off your line, nail in your framing, and you've got some 90-degree angles. Rock and roll, right? Precision. God says his judgment will be measured with the plumb line. Calculated and precise. Now, without much of a transition statement, as you could tell when Katie read it this morning, Isaiah switches gears. The overall tone of Isaiah 34 is darkness, and then the tone of Isaiah 34, or 35, excuse me, is light. Verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Totally different tone, right? In Exodus, the Exodus story, God's people were wandering through the desert on their way to the promised land. And God was leading them the whole time. He was with them at all times. So here, Isaiah is now trying to remind God's people of that past while pointing them to their future. He's trying to paint them a picture of their final homecoming into the presence of God. And they'll be so overjoyed with the presence of God, they'll just have so much joy. They'll be singing. Verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. God wants us to encourage each other to look for new blessings to look for things that are evidences of God's grace. And something crazy, verse 4, points us back to the judgment in 34 and says, check that out. That's good news for us. What? (laughs) Future judgment 
his present comfort? How is that possible? Well, for someone who is following God, for someone who is one of God's people, who's trying to be faithful, trying to be obedient, and walk in faithfulness, which is challenging and hard, maybe they're worn down by life, maybe they're looking around and they're seeing their neighbors, their friends, people that maybe don't know the Lord, and they're just, you know, worn out, saying, man, this is really hard to be obedient to God in this world. Well, for them, God's justice is good news. God will be faithful to right the wrongs and to punish all evil. So be strong, fear not. Verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Sound familiar at all? Isaiah's kind of peering into the crystal ball here for a second, and he's revealing to us what the future kingdom of God is going to be like. Jesus gave us a taste of his earthly ministry He gave us a taste of this destiny. In Matthew's gospel account, Jesus goes up to a paralyzed guy and says, get up, get your mat, and walk. And he does. Not only that, before he does that, he says to him, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus wasn't just performing random miracles. He was fulfilling prophecy. both physical and spiritual healing. Sin forgiven, the lame man leaping like a deer. This is what a picture of future salvation looks like. Verses 6 and 7, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This is quite the contrast, right, from chapter 34. We went from going this desolate, uninhabitable wasteland covered with unclean animals to now this, this peaceful, redeemed creation. We go from nettles and thistles to reeds and rushes. Verse 8 and 9. Now really tune into this description, okay? Who will be on this path of salvation? And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed. People who are holy and set apart are going to walk on this literal highway above all this garbage in 34. So clearly marked that not even fool could miss it. Someone totally clueless is still going to be able to see this obvious highway. This path is so set apart that even the unclean and ravenous beasts that we saw had total reign and dominion in chapter 34 on the earth, they have no place here. This picture concludes with a thesis phrase, everlasting joy. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The redeemed people of God finally arrive in the eternal promised land, into the presence of God, Zion. Eternal joy is resting on them. So, Isaiah paints us these two pictures. One future is very dark, and one future is very light. 
But what does it all mean? Well, they're two destinies, right? But who are they for? They're for us. Listen to what Ray Orland has to say about these two destinies. You need to understand that heaven and hell will be, in one sense, the eternal extension of the deepest, truest you that you become in this life. So here's the most important question of your existence. What are you becoming? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. If you are savoring by faith the salvation and fullness from God, then you are already on your way to what Isaiah calls Zion in chapter 35. But if you choose not to live by faith in this world, Isaiah 34 is showing you your future. It's a pretty sobering statement, right? Orlin wants us to see that judgment is not like a game of Russian roulette, okay? We are working our way towards one of these destinies right now as we speak. So here's the million-dollar question. What path are you walking on? Or as Orlin puts it, what are you becoming? I think our tendency is to feel like we're doing all right. Hey, I'm doing better than the other guy, right? I'm doing some good stuff, not killing anybody. I should be all right when it comes to the end, right? Let me read something from John Owen, a late Puritan pastor. He's got something to say about cruise control when it comes to life, coasting, and the nature of sin. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and the waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. When the waters of our life seem the most calm, sin is deep and stirring beneath the surface. You see, the reality is we are always moving in either one of these directions. We are not static. Sin does not rest. It does not let us rest. We are either moving toward God or away from him. We're either moving further to him through humble obedience and faith or we're moving further from him in dismissiveness and pride. There is no middle way. And if we think that there is a middle way, if we think we're doing all right, then we're already caught in sin's trap. Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. So I want to ask this question. Why does any of this matter? So what if the Bible tells me I've got one of two places to go? What difference does that make? Well, today we started with saying that God is going to challenge us with our two final outcomes, right? But I think we could change that we could change the title of all of this and just say, you know what, there's really one final outcome. God will have glory. You see, the Bible is really one big story about God getting glory, okay? started in creation. There was darkness, there was nothing, remember? It was empty. And then, boom, let there be light. New creation, God enjoying his creation, his creation enjoying him. And we were in that, right? God asked us, be my image bearers in this new creation, and it will be good. But instead of trusting God, instead of believing he had our best in mind, we chose to dismiss him. Our parents, Adam and Eve, 
committed the first and the greatest sin that you and I continue to commit to this day. They took their destiny into their own hands. They made their life about themselves instead of him. And for this, God cast them out of the garden, which at first seems like a pretty messed up thing to do, right? Kind of cruel and unusual. But really, God was sparing them an eternal punishment, an eternal separation from him in the garden. Genesis 3.22, which is right after Adam and Eve sinned, says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Doesn't even finish the sentence, right? God can't even stand to bear the thought of his children, of his image bearers, living forever, separated from him. So he cast them out. Out of love. So that they will actually have a chance to enter back in to relationship with him again later. For our sin of taking our destiny into our own hands, we deserve to die. This is not just Adam and Eve's story, but this is our story too, right? We all do this in different ways, different times. But death entered the world because of our disobedience. But God uses it for our good. Death is the only way we can actually get back into the garden, back into eternal life with him. But first we have to deal with this issue of sin, this pesky thing we call sin, right? Our sin requires payment, and that payment is blood. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. That's basically what that says, straight up. No rhyme or reason about it. And the payment of sin is death. We saw that in chapter 4, 34, excuse me, that God wants blood. Remember that? The Lord, the, sword, the Lord has a sword that is sated with blood. It's pretty clear. <clears throat> he wants to cleanse us and wash us of our sin. In 35, he makes it clear that nothing unclean can stand in his presence. So, here's my question for us today. Whose blood will pay for your sin? Think about coming to the end of your life. You're looking back. You're wondering about what, what's about to happen. What are you going to face when you die? And then you pass. And now you're faced with what Isaiah sees in chapter 6. The Lord is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Why do you deserve to be declared righteous? Pressure's on, right? You're blown away. You feel exposed. You start looking left, you start looking right. Think about your life. You gather up every memory that you can muster in your mind of things that you've done that are good, of good things you've done to your neighbor, of donations you've made to charity, of everything that's evil that you could have done that you didn't. And you just gather those things in your hands and you point, hold them out to God. You say, is this it, God? Is this good enough? Does this get me in? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There is absolutely no good deed that is good enough in the eyes of God. God wants blood. So I ask again, whose blood will pay for your sin? Our options are limited. 
Either you pay for your sin with your blood, Isaiah 34 style, or Jesus pays for your sin on the cross with his blood. The book of Romans tells us the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to earth. He trusted the Father's destiny for him as he submitted to the Father's destiny for him all the way to the cross and to the grave. Jesus succeeded where our first parents failed. And he is willing to take your punishment, my punishment, for you, for me, if we just ask him. If we simply believe in him and if we submit to him. Jesus takes your chapter 34, he bears it on the cross, and he gives you chapter 35. And then, when we come to the end, we can come to the end before God with not our good deeds in our hands, but the blood of Christ, the only sacrifice acceptable to him, the only good deed acceptable to God. All right. Let me just take a minute and tell you a little bit about my story and how God took me from Isaiah chapter 34 to Isaiah chapter 35. So I grew up hearing about God, grew up going to church, but as the years went on into high school, I kind of found myself being um, pretty less than interested in God. I had to come to be very um, just dismissive, honestly. I was kind of a doubter, kind of a cynic, kind of skeptical, and I even remember this this very distinct memory. I was, sitting in, I was sitting in church pew, and I thought to myself, I don't even think Jesus is God's son. I never told anybody that. But I basically kind of took that attitude, and I ran with it. I sort of just said, you know what? I'm going to live my life without giving God much thought at all. It was very, I just dismissed him, pretty much. I was going to take my destiny into my own hands. <clears throat> so one way this attitude sort of played itself out was through relationship. Met a girl in high school, fell in love. I was like, all right, let's do this. Happiness. I'm going to make it mine. I'm going to marry this girl. We're going to do that whole, you know, romantic story thing. Life will be good. Fast forward five years. Living together like we're married, but really not. Neither of us really that happy at all. I would lay down at night and have to talk myself back into this thing. Every night. I'd have to keep convincing myself, no, I'm happy. This is it. I mean, I've always said we're going to spend our lives together, right? I've given my, my, my life, my mind, my body, my soul to this thing. I can't turn back now, can I? I was having to talk myself back in because what I was really feeling was anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, shame. I was feeling like a fool. I've told this person I'd be there forever, but deep down inside, I just I wanted out. I was always trying to please always trying to keep the peace. And all the while, I was feeling like less of a man, more unsure, and lost. I say all this now, obviously, as I'm looking back in the rearview mirror, and it can be clear now, I wouldn't have said that at the time, but that's what I was feeling. And I realize now that God was very graciously showing me, letting me go my own way, and saying, you want to take your destiny into your own hands, that's fine. Let's see how that plays itself out just like a good father would say to his son. Learn lessons the hard way. God, through that experience, was showing me what life was going to be like with living something else at the center of it, without him. 
My life was filled with anxiety, uncertainty, and it was very dark. But in the midst of that, I found myself on the doorstep of this church, started showing up on Sundays, and I was loving it. I had no idea why. I hadn't been in church in years. And all of a sudden, just everything started landing on me very differently. Everything was warm. Everything was, I was just, I don't know, I was excited. I was excited to be here and show up and listen and learn. I was asking a ton of questions about God, about Jesus. Why are we talking about Jesus so much? Kind of obnoxiously is how I would ask that question every week in what we called missional communities at the time, our community groups. I was that guy. <laughs> but slowly, over time, God started to become more real to me. I started to see when I had been blind that I, me, I have sinned against God. God started to reveal to me that I was a sinner, that my personal sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross. It's what he came to die for. Not just this abstract idea of sin that I had grown up hearing about, but that me, Kevin Huddleston, I had something to do with that. And now I will have something to do with that at the end too. But Jesus died for me. His forgiveness is for me. And that started to warm my heart. To be truly known, to be truly loved, sounded good to me. So the relationship ended, and all of a sudden, everything I had been living my, my life for five years was gone. So I had this moment where I was standing in my bathroom. Don't worry, it's not about to get weird, I promise. Standing before the mirror, and I had this very surreal moment, okay, where God was sort of showing me exactly everything I've explained to you in this last five minutes. Kevin, this is what your life has been like without me, with something else in the middle of it, and this is how you feel. You feel empty and you feel purposeless. But you've seen, Kevin, this is what I offer you. Life, joy, a new identity, peace. That sounded really good. I saw these two things and I knew in that moment that I wanted God to fill the void that was left by this relationship being gone. To fill it with himself and to take my life of chapter 34 and to give me chapter 35. It's only made possible by the blood of Christ. So, we have these two pictures. We have these two destinies. And we can respond one of two ways. Either we can believe and we can trust in Jesus, or we can dismiss it, keep walking down the path towards judgment. These are our only two choices. And remember, whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. If you are hearing this today and your heart is just refreshed with the gospel, and the fact that Jesus has died for your sin, taken your punishment and judgment from you, and that gives you joy, be excited. God is in you, he is alive in you, and it's good. Just keep doing what you're going to be doing for eternity, which is worshiping God and walking in obedience. But if you are unmoved by this, if this is just another Sunday morning, if you leave and aren't really changed, don't really think you need to completely trust Jesus, then you're headed for destruction. That's what the Bible says. I wish I could dress it up some other way. But that's what the Bible says. It's what it tells us. Trust in Jesus. He shed his blood for you and has given you another destiny full of life and joy. 
I ask you to trust your God and put your faith in him this morning. And I want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Put it this way about the two destinies of people. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Let me pray for us. God, your words are very heavy this morning. And we do not take them lightly. God, I pray that um, no matter where we are this morning, that you would meet us. That you would speak to us. That, God, you would soften our hearts towards your voice. That, God, the things that you have stirred in us this morning as we think about eternity would not just leave us the second we walk out the door. pray that, God, you would be reminding us that in spite of whatever we've done in our lives to this point, the only thing that matters at the end is your son's blood and his sacrifice for us. That's all we have. That's all we can cling to. God, I pray that that would be good news. I pray that, God, that would awaken joy in our hearts. I pray that, God, that would remind us that it's not about us, it's about you. I pray that, God, that would bring freedom just to enjoy our life and enjoy walking with you and enjoy being obedient to you. That, God, that would free us from the burdens of this life. That, God, you would take our yoke and bear it upon yourself. And that, God, we could just give it to you freely as you have given yourself to us freely. So God, I pray this would create worship and joy and obedience and humility and all the things that Jesus demonstrated to us while he was on earth. God, we love you as your children, and we thank you. Amen.